Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. morning on this Friday morning. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura in New York, Francine Lacqua in London, Michael McKee out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. He and his production team making sure all the bison and elk are in place for the start of his interview with uh, Robert Kaplan, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. We're going to be carrying that interview for you live here in just a few minutes. Again, our focus here this morning really on the uh, economic policy conference uh, that the Kansas City Fed convenes annually uh, at Grand Teton National Park in Jackson Hole, uh, Wyoming. A number of our colleagues are out there now. Really, things get underway this morning with a big speech by Fed Chair uh, Janet Yellen. She's speaking this morning at 10 o'clock at Wall Street time. Uh, she's expected to talk about financial stability, of course. That's what it's being billed as. That's the headline, the big descriptor that the Federal Reserve uh, has given us. We'll see if she she sticks to it. This has been an event where there is the agenda. We get that uh, about a day in advance. Uh, yet you've had some big speeches and pivotal moments uh, in Jackson Hole as central bankers veer off script a little bit and <laughs> maybe take the opportunity to talk about what's going to be happening here uh, in the near term. And uh, you've got three big central bank uh, heads out in Jackson Hole right now. As I mentioned, Fed Chair Janet Yellen speaking this morning. Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB, scheduled to take the stage or the lectern uh, inside the Jackson Lake Lodge uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock Wall Street time. And uh, Governor Kuroda of the Bank of of Japan is in Wyoming as well. He's not uh, on the uh, official schedule. He's not delivering a speech or speaking on a panel, but uh, he is there as a participant, mixing and mingling with other uh, monetary policymakers uh, and academics who uh, study uh, macroeconomics who are out in Jackson Hole. Michael McKee, as I mentioned, out there now. He is sitting down with the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, Robert Kaplan. Good morning, and we'd like to welcome all of our viewers to Bloomberg Television and listeners to Bloomberg Radio as we speak with Robert Kaplan, who is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Uh, you've given a number of speeches in recent days and interviews in which you've said you want to be cautious about monetary policy. So let me put it bluntly. What are you afraid of? What are you being cautious about? Uh, it's what I've said. I've, the word I've used is actually patient, and here's the reason I've said patient. Uh, I've been a strong advocate that we raise the Fed funds rate twice this year, uh, and that gets us to 100 to 125. My own judgment is that we're making progress on uh, reaching full employment. Uh, GDP should grow in excess of 2% this year. We're obviously not meeting our inflation target. But the bigger, bigger thing I would say is we're a little closer to the neutral rate than people might think. I think 10 years ago, I might have said the neutral rate, or your viewers might have thought the neutral rate, the rate at which we're neither accommodative or restrictive, maybe 4 or 5%. Today, I think that number maybe is closer to the mid-twos, between 2 and 3. That means at 100 to 125, we're accommodative, but not quite as accommodative as people think. And I think there are a number of structural forces in the economy that are creating a muting effect on inflation. So I think we should be removing accommodation, but I think it should be done gradually and patiently, and I think we can afford to do it gradually and patiently, and that's all I've been advocating. I want to be patient and see how these forces are uh, unfolding regarding inflation, and I think we can afford to be patient, and uh, that doesn't mean we might not raise one more time this year, but I'd like to see more data that we're making progress on our inflation mandate, and I think we have the ability to do that. If inflation stays about where it is, does that rule out December for you? I don't want to prejudge it. I, I still believe that the cyclical forces, you know, as we're, as we're 
as we're removing slack from the labor force, more people are employed. We're creating uh, wage, some wage pressure. We're creating, we're likely to create with a lag some price pressure, not the way we would have seen historically. So I think it won't be as binary as inflation doesn't move. I think inflation pressures are moving. I just think they're moving gradually, and I think the Fed can afford to remove accommodation, therefore, gradually and patiently. Do you think at the current level of interest rates, there's any danger to the economy that the Fed could slow things down? Concurrently, uh, con- uh, uh, if you leave rates where they are, is that going to actually help bring inflation up? I think we're the key. The key judgment you make when you're talking about it is, are we accommodative? And I, I think we clearly are. Let's say the neutral rate today, for example, is in the mid twos, and we're at 100, 125. We're still uh, accommodative. And so I think that should, all things being equal, be stimulative of the economy. And I think that's where we are. And I think the, the, uh, the performance of the economy is consistent with, with that view. Janet Yellen talking about financial stability today. We don't know what she's going to say, but one aspect of that is whether or not asset prices are overvalued. And there are colleagues of yours who make the case that with the Fed rate tightenings we've seen, uh, financial conditions are still going down, getting looser, and that justifies a rate increase. So the thing I look for, and I've spent my career, as you know, in the markets. I'm not a Ph.D. economist. I'm a business person. Uh, It's not that high market valuations pose the threat. High PEs, low cap rates for real estate. What I'm looking for is debt buildup associated with those high valuations. And that's what I'm watching for. I think a market correction uh, or real estate correction is not necessarily going to create a systemic risk or slow the economy. I think it might even be healthy, but I'm looking for debt buildup associated with it. So far, I don't see that, but I'm watching for it. I think one of the reasons I haven't seen it is we've had very strong macroprudential policies for big banks, annual stress testing, and other strong measures that have served us well. So uh, I'm more focused on debt buildup and other excesses than I am uh, valuation. But I think as you get higher valuations and tighter credit spreads, it tends to encourage people to take more risks, use more leverage, reach for illiquid assets. So I'm watching for that. Are there any areas that you are concerned about? If you're not worried about equity prices in general, but are there other asset classes? Well, I've, I've commented a lot this year. I've, I've, I'm watching for either excess debt buildup or people in asset classes that look liquid that in a crisis become illiquid. So, for example, I've been scrutinizing, and I've said this publicly, the high-yield funds that offer daily liquidity. Liquidity. I used to run the high-yield business in my business career before I did other things, and I know that a high-yield bond is a great example of an asset class that might be liquid today, but in a crisis is very illiquid, and so to offer daily liquidity creates a mismatch. I think the industry has worked to try to address that, but that's an example of an excess that I'm watching. I think it's manageable, though, uh, and I'm looking for things like that. Obviously, credit default swaps, counterparty exposure, and those things I think we now have a better grip on because we have good stress testing. We didn't have good stress testing pre-crisis, and I think it's the main thing in all this talk about regulatory review, which I think is healthy. We need to maintain, though, for big banks, annual stress testing. And I think that's why you get out. That's how you get at in a stress scenario, whether you've got these embedded uh, imbalances. Do you think investors are too complacent these days? Uh, I think investors have gotten used to the idea that rates are going to be lower for longer. You know, with a 10-year Treasury at 220, approximately, and global interest rates much lower, I think people are starting to get comfortable with the idea that 
maybe we should get used to these low rates. And the reason I think they're getting used to it is perspective growth, while it's solid, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't look like it's going to get meaningfully better. One of those reasons is aging, aging population, slower workforce growth, which is a headwind for all Western economies. So ironically, even though aging demographics and other headwinds should slow GDP growth, they keep rates low. And so investors are started starting to get comfortable with low cap rates for real estate. Uh, higher PEs might be justified because we could be in this regime for an extended period of time. So does that argue in favor of going ahead with the balance sheet reduction as a voting member this year? Is there any reason to think you won't do it, announce it in no. September? So while I've said I, I want to be patient and gradual on interest rates, I believe we should be moving on the balance sheet uh, as soon as possible. Uh, in the very near future. And I think beginning this balance sheet reduction is a healthy thing. It's a good thing. Central banks around the world own now a substantial percentage of government bonds. It may be having some uh, effect on the tenure and in term premium. Uh, And so I think that would be a good thing. I think we've articulated a very clear plan publicly on how we're going to reduce the balance sheet. I think it's now time to get started. Uh, And I think we can do this in an appropriate way Uh, and get our balance sheet smaller. And I think that's a healthy thing. We should begin it soon. We are live in Jackson Hole with Robert Kaplan. He is the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank. We're live around the world on Bloomberg Television and Radio. Uh, Let's continue talking about the balance sheet. Uh, What impact do you think it is going to have on markets uh, when you blew up the balance sheet, asset prices rose? Are we going to see the same thing happen in reverse? So here's what's changed uh, from the time... And, and I was an observer, in fact, in the business world watching this when we did it, because I wasn't at the Fed um, at the time. At the time the Fed started to do QE and buy, uh, buy bonds, uh, it was in the early stages globally of central banks buying more government bonds. Uh, we're now at the period today where there's an enormous amount of liquidity, not just the Fed, but the ECB and many other central banks have participated in this. So I actually believe that we will be able, we've crafted a plan where we'll be able to, we're not selling these securities, mortgage-backed and treasuries, we're simply not replacing maturities as they as they come due. And we've said we're gonna do this in a phased-in way, we've articulated that, it's out in the market, market participants are well aware of it. You haven't seen, if anything, the 10-year and the 30-year have trended down since we've announced the plan. So I'm pretty confident that we can do this in a way that minimizes the impact on the treasury market and the mortgage-backed securities market. And, um, and I think uh, this has been a, a plan that's been well communicated. And uh, I think it should be effective. We don't know what Mario Draghi is going to say, but essentially the ECB has said they will stop buying by the end of the year uh, and their QE program. Uh, How do you think the combination of the Fed and the ECB is going to affect bond yields? Do you have any kind of forecast for what we might see and whether we get a de facto tightening? So there's no uh, there's no textbook there was no textbook for building up the balance sheet, and there's no textbook for winding it down. Uh, other than to, what I tend to look at in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities is what's the daily volume and what's the size we're talking about running down as a percentage of daily volume. Uh, to my eye, uh, this plan is very manageable. I, I'm, I would believe the ECB would look at the same factors if they were going to actually start shrinking their balance sheet. Right now, they're just talking about slowing the growth. And so I think right now, 
relative to the volume in these markets, this plan uh, should be very manageable. And I believe we've done it in a way that will minimize impacts to the market. If you think that the neutral rate is lower than uh, we might otherwise think, uh, does that imply that you're going to be ratcheting down your forecasts when you get to uh, the next uh, summary of economic projections in September? Well, over the years, as you know, the uh, the terminal rate, which is what you're referring to, which is the rate at which central bankers and all of us are saying we're going to stop uh, or the natural rate we should get to, it's been inching down over the last number of years. Uh, it may have a little bit further to go. I'll just speak for myself, not for others around the table. Uh, I, I'm of the view uh, that the terminal rate is lower. My views on what the terminal rate is is probably lower today than it was certainly uh, two years ago. My views are that it's down somewhat. And I'll have to see. I'll be submitting this in September. I don't want to pre preview oh, that because it's not appropriate. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think it's closer to the two and a half range than it is to three. Let me ask you this way. Are you closer to the markets now than to what the consensus on the Fed has been? Uh, I mean, I, I, it, it looks like the market is basically assuming that the neutral rate is somewhat lower than we might have said. But the truth is, uh, you look at the 10 year Treasury, some of that might be central bank liquidity. But it tells you something about um, the expectations of future growth uh, to have a tenure that's 220. And I think, like everything else in my life and career, I, I, I like to. I don't always. Uh, I don't always understand what the market's saying, but I always try to pay attention to what the market's saying. A tenure at 220 is telling me something. Yeah. Well, we have a question from a viewer that goes along those lines. Uh, what are the forces that have changed the neutral rate? I think the biggest driver. Um, uh, is prospects for future growth. And the biggest issue for me that, that is affecting uh, prospective growth is demographic. It's probably not talked about near enough. The U.S. population is aging. The workforce growth is slowing. This is not just going on in the United States, it's going on in Japan, it's going on in Germany, it's going on in most of the developed world. It's also an uh, issue facing China. Uh, they've offset that by increasing their leverage, but they're They've got a population issue. GDP is made up of growth in the workforce and growth in productivity. And uh, so if you've got slow growing workforce, you can deal with that. Uh, more getting more women into the workforce, people working longer, uh, closing the skills gap, getting people more people trained, which I've been a big advocate of. And immigration is part of growing the workforce. And it has been historically in the United States. But where we stand now, uh, Lower neutral rate is a function of slower growth, and I think slower growth has been heavily a function of sluggish uh, demographic trends that are uh, going to go on for a number of years. We can do some things to deal with them, but the reality is workforce growth is projected to slow further over the next 10 years. Uh, what gets done will depend to a great extent on what happens in Washington. Uh, what do you think of the are you optimistic or pessimistic? Let me put it that way about what's going to happen on the fiscal side. And are you concerned at all about a debt ceiling crisis? So. Uh, as a central banker, I'm careful about publicly handicapping. The, as a business person, I, I regularly tried to handicap what was likely to happen. As a central banker, I talk more about what I think should happen. So I think regulatory review is positive, and that's ongoing if it's done in a sensible way. Uh, infrastructure spending, I think, could be very helpful. Uh, tax reform, underlying reform, could be positive as long as it's not a deficit-financed tax reduction. Uh, I'm a little more concerned about policies relating to trade and immigration because uh, I actually think 
uh, trade and immigration could be a source of growth. And so I'm watching these different policies and I try to speak out on which ones I think will help and which ones I think may actually create more headwinds. Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank. Thank you for joining us worldwide on Bloomberg Television and Radio. We'll send it back to you in the studio. Michael McKee, thank you very much. One of several interviews Michael's going to be doing throughout the day from the uh, Economic Policy Forum in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, convened by the Kansas City Fed. Robert Kaplan there of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, a very interesting perspective given his career. Uh, He mentioned his background is in business. Uh, He was a professor at Harvard Business School and before that spent many decades uh, at Goldman Sachs. No doubt we'll be talking about what he had to say here uh, as the show continues. David Gura in New York, Francine Lockwood in London. Glenn Hubbard now joins us from Jackson Hole. He's a dean, of course, at the Columbia University Graduate School of Business. I served some time in the Treasury Department down in Washington uh, as well. He's a participant uh, in this week's uh, symposium on monetary policy convened by the Kansas City Fed taking place uh, at Grand Teton National Park uh, in Wyoming. Great to have you with us and a lot to talk about here uh, as I look through the agenda for for the conference ahead. Let me ask you first just to react to a couple of things that uh, Robert Kaplan said to our colleague Michael McKee just a moment ago. He asked him if we are accommodative at this point. Robert Kaplan said we clearly are. Is it your sense this Fed is still accommodative? I think the Fed is, uh, yes, quite accommodative. And I think there's remains an argument for monetary policy normalization. The debate is really over how fast and in what form. On the issue of, of, of the sort of regulatory landscape, a lot has been made by this administration of changes they could make to the regulatory uh, landscape in Washington, D.C., what, what changes the Treasury Department could make, uh, what the Federal Reserve could do differently. Robert Kaplan said he thinks that strong macroprudential policies for big banks have, quote, served us well. Do you agree with him? Do, do you think that we still need the kind of annual stress test the Fed has overseen? Do you think that the, the policies put into place after the financial crisis thus far have worked? I think many of those policies have been very constructive. The question is, are we doing the best job we can? And the answer to that's no. The stress tests remain a black box. There's much more the Fed could do to be open. And I think it's not a matter of more or less, but do we have the right kind of regulation? I hope that's where the administration focuses. Yeah, and and Dewey, your answer to that would be Professor what? To me, the focus is on systemic risk and contagion. And that's keeping the Fed as a strong lender of last resort. It's, yes, doing the stress test, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that capital adequacy in an individual bank can prevent a crisis. It can't. Right, but, Professor, what I, you know, I live, I'm currently in London. We talk a lot about stress tests. We're stress testing for things that have already happened. We're modeling things where there's a muscle memory. Is the next crisis or the next something ugly happening in banks not going to come from something we've never seen before? Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, every crisis is different. But frankly, banks familiarly get into trouble by just holding dodgy things on their balance sheet. It's a different dodgy thing, but that's the familiar path. So really, a focus on good macroprudential regulation uh, is the right answer. And a regulatory system that balances that with the need to grow the economy and provide credit. How concerned are you when you when you look at Washington today about the the vacancies we we see throughout government? Uh, As I said, you've served in the Treasury Department before. You know intimately who does what and how important it is to have a fully staffed uh, Department of the Treasury. Say, are are you concerned that we're handicapped regulatorily, uh, policy wise, by not having enough principles in place? 
I really am. I, I've had the privilege of working in the Treasury and the White House. And, you know, the old adage that personnel is policy is true. The president, of course, sets the tone, but you need arms and legs to carry out his agenda. So I, I think that the administration needs to continue to pick up the pace. We've seen Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, take over responsibilities for the Financial Stability Oversight Council. That's the sort of grand council of, of, of the heads of a lot of these, uh, these agencies. How much power does he have, in your estimation or by your understanding, uh, to shape the direction of regulatory policy in that capacity? And do you have a sense of where uh, he might be taking things? Well, I think Secretary Mnuchin really has two sources of influence. Formally, as chair, he has some de jure power as a result of the Dodd-Frank Act. But frankly, he has enormous persuasive power. He is the Secretary of the Treasury. Treasury should be playing a lead role here, and I think under his leadership it is. Um, Professor, what is the one thing that concerns you? So you're in Jackson Hole. We look at monetary policy. You talked a little bit about inflation with David. But actually, is there something, is there a huge distortion? I don't know whether it's in the markets or the global economy that central banks can't quite cope with, apart from inflation. Well, I think inflation, obviously, figuring out why inflation is so low is a big issue. But I think in terms of the future, being prepared to fight a future financial crisis or economic crisis remains important. And with monetary policy being as accommodative as it is now, the Fed, other than being a strong lender of last resort, will not play perhaps as big a role as it did last time. That puts more attention on getting fiscal policy right, and that's my worry. Do you worry that the central bank, the Fed, is a little bit seen to be following markets, that markets didn't believe they could raise as many times that Fed officials were saying at the beginning of the year and the markets were proven right? Well, I think Fed officials should pay attention to markets, obviously, but they shouldn't be led by them. My concern is more the Fed needs to articulate where we're going here. You know, what is the Fed's take either on what the long-run rate of interest ought to be, what the size and scope of the balance sheet ought to be. We need more of that discussion from the Fed. Do you get a sense that the Fed here is paying adequate attention to the markets? What's your sense of the level of engagement this Federal Reserve has with what's going on in the markets? Well, I think the Fed definitely pays attention to the markets. Uh, personally, I'd like to see Fed officials spend good quality time with market participants to understand how they think. But that's very different than saying, let the market participant tail wag the Fed dog. That's a very different thing. The Fed needs to have its own view of the economy and the world, and it needs to share that view with the Congress and the American people. Do you expect that we're going to hear something from Mario Draghi today uh, on the strength of the euro? What power does he have here to jawbone the euro? Well, obviously, President Draghi has a great deal of uh, influence. Uh, normally, speeches here are not designed to make news, so I would be surprised if it's something totally earth-shattering, but it'll be very interesting, as remarks from him as all, always are. Uh, I was thinking how coyly I could ask you about whether or not you were weighing or entertaining moving down to Washington, perhaps trading your office in the Eurus building uh, for one in the Eccles building. Uh, assuming that you're not going to give me an answer on that, let me just ask you about what difference it might make to have somebody with a markets background or a non-academic background leading the Fed Reserve. Do you, do you think that that uh, would make a difference when it comes to monetary policy in this country? I think it obviously depends on the person. The real question at the beginning in picking a Fed chair or any Fed governor is what do you want the Fed to do? When you know the answer to that question, you'll be able to fill in the who. 
I think the Fed benefits from having diverse perspectives, but monetary policy is a highly technical subject. So economists will obviously be part of that discussion. Do you get a sense that this administration does have a sense of who or what type of person it wants in that role? I go back to that recent interview that the president did with the Wall Street Journal in which uh, a reporter asked him who he might be considering. And I think that he said something to the effect of, I don't have to make that decision until February when, uh, when Janet Yellen steps down, leading me to think that it isn't something that he's uh, really wrestled with uh, yet. Do you get a sense, though, that President Trump and those around him have begun to think about who they might like to lead the Fed going forward? Well, President Trump is on top of all of this. I'm, I'm sure the real question, again, I would ask is before you get to a who, talk about the what. And I would hope that's what the administration's focused on. All right, Professor. So talk to me about the what. Who would you put in charge? In, not a person. I don't want to name. I mean, I want to name two, but not right now. But just give me a sense of what kind of personality, what kind of, I guess, background they need to have. Well, I think if you want the Fed to be clearer with the Congress and the American people, both about uh, the conduct of monetary policy and the conduct of financial regulation, you'd need somebody who's very comfortable in those worlds, not just as the chair, but as governors, as vice chairs. And I think the question for the president is really, what do you want the Federal Reserve uh, to do? I think it's good to have technical knowledge. It's good to have market knowledge. All of those things are desirable. Right, but if you had to choose between technical knowledge and market knowledge, given that we're seeing boundaries which we hadn't seen before, which one would you choose? I don't think you have to choose. There are many people with substantial technical knowledge who are not strangers to markets. So I don't think you really have to choose. The reason I put substantial weight on technical knowledge is that, you know, as your question earlier asked, we don't really know where the sources of future trouble come from. And so it's very important to understand how the economy works. Do we overplay the, the change that would come from a more rules-based approach to, to monetary policy? You have John Taylor and others uh, saying we, we could use more of that. Do we think of it in too slavish a term? In other words, uh, do, we, do we see it as something that would be devoid from, from emotion, that we wouldn't have uh, Fed officials looking at sort of the, uh, the feel of the qualitative data? Are, are we overplaying that? I think in many respects we are. And I, I always say the word framework uh, more than I say the word rule, simply because you want to articulate what you're looking at, where you're going, and what the path to get there is. Obviously, you'll deviate uh, as you explain to markets uh, and to the Congress that you've gotten new information that blows you off course. So I think it's a matter of explaining. I, uh, you know, to me, it's maintain and explain. You maintain a framework, but you explain why you depart when you depart present time, the Fed's doing neither one. Our colleague Michael McKee asked uh, President Kaplan about the balance sheet unwind, the, the plan that we've seen thus far. Uh, President Kaplan said he's uh, eager to see this get underway as, as soon as possible. It's high time that we start to see some effort toward uh, normalization. What sort of market effect should we expect from that? What, what are you looking to see happen here in light of what the Fed has outlined? Well, I think if the Fed were to take an approach of explaining what size and scope of the balance sheet in the long run is optimal for its purposes and then how it gets there, the market reaction is not going to be that significant. Professor, when you look at inflation, does it really need to be at 2%? This is one of, you know, it goes back to the Phillips curve, why it's not increasing as much as we thought it would in this level of the cycle. But actually, does it really make a difference if inflation is 1.6, 1.7, or 2.1%? 
Well, I think 2% has been uh, the quasi-inflation target for the Fed. I think it's very important to be credible when you say something, that you're going to conduct policy in a way that, that gets that. I think many economists are puzzled as to why inflation hasn't picked up more yet and, and likely will. But I think 2% is still a good number. It's certainly consistent with long-run price stability, the way we measure price deflators. So some people believe that inflation isn't really where it's supposed to be, mainly because of regulation, but also all these disruptors in the social economy, so Uber and the likes. Do you believe that? Do you buy that? Well, those are certainly one-off factors. The question is, going forward, will there be a continuation of a series of one-off factors or eventually wage pressures catch up? Personally, I think we will see uh, 2% inflation in the not-too-distant future, but I'm not worried about a blowout in inflation. Let me ask you a Tom Keene question. Tom Keene is uh, off this week, but I'll step into the fore here and just uh, ask you about the, the corpus of academic work. I'll picture work you in a bow tie. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that on a radio. to behold. We can pretend that I'm wearing one. Uh, what's the corpus of academic thought now say about uh, building up the balance sheet and unwinding the balance sheet? Robert Kaplan saying there is no textbook for building it up or, or, or winding it down. Are we getting any better at, at coming to conclusions about how this works? And you're there in Jackson Hole among uh, the head of the Fed, the head of the ECB, the head of the Bank of Japan. What's the, the dialogue like about this process? How much universality is there about this process of, of building something up and then, and then tapering it down? Well, I, I think Rob Kaplan's comments are, are right that the Fed is discussing this a lot. Uh, my own view is that it would be better to start with a framework, actually study what size balance sheet do you think you need to conduct monetary policy, and then what's the scope of that balance sheet? I'm nervous about the Fed holding non-Treasury assets. I understand in a crisis why that might be necessary, but in the long run, it doesn't strike me as desirable. But that's a point of view, and the Fed needs to have that kind of conversation and then determine what it's going to do with its portfolio. So I, I would like to see a more aggressive discussion of that rather than let's see. In just a few minutes' time, you're going to head into that lodge. Uh, Susan Collins, the uh, former dean of the, the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan, is going to deliver some marks, and then uh, the Fed chair is going to step out and, and talk about financial stability. This is something that uh, Chair Yellen has talked about time and time again, Dean Hubbard. What, what's left unsaid? What would you like to hear that would be new or novel from the Fed chair on the issue of financial stability, predicting that she's not going to say a whole lot here about near-term policy? Yeah, I doubt she will. I, I would expect Chair Yellen to comment on steps the Fed has taken uh, in her view to improve financial stability and where she might think asset markets are. I, my guess is that's what she will talk about. Her subject is, is not necessarily the theme of this whole conference, but obviously all eyes are on her. Um, Professor, what is the optimum level for dollar? I don't know what you want to, you know, if it's dollar, euro that you look at, but is there a, a kind of sweet spot, a Goldilocks spot for the level of dollar? I think it depends on what your views are about growth in the two regions to know, uh, to know that answer. You know, we have seen a, a decline in the dollar's value uh, in, in recent months. How much of that reflects different changes in growth uh, prospects or monetary policy? Uh, attitudes towards what, what's happening in Washington. It could be all of the above. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Glenn Hubbard there from Jackson Hole, the dean of the Columbia Business School.
So let's go back to uh, central banks and uh, their meeting, of course, in Jackson Hall. Let's get straight to Mohamed Ilarian. He's a Bloomberg View columnist. Mohamed, good morning to you. Thank you for a brilliant columns all week because we've been using them as our morning must read, uh, I think, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Now, we just spoke to two Federal Reserve officials taking opposite sides of uh, the central bank's ongoing debate, right, on how to respond to disappointingly low inflation. What would you do? Were you, would you raise hike rates or not? So I think the reason why, Francine, you, you hear different views coming about from Fed officials is not because they disagree fundamentally on low inflation, but they attach different probabilities to financial instability down the road. And if this is the tension on monetary policy right now. Low inflation says remain looser for longer. Concerns about financial instability says take this window and tighten. I would come in towards the latter. I think there is a case to tighten in December, especially as the global economy continues to pick up. I would be careful about being excessively obsessed with low inflation because there may be structural reasons for that that monetary policy cannot address. How much would you hike by? And is 25 basis points actually so small that it wouldn't really impact? So even if inflation was more significant of something you know, bad to happen in 2018, it wouldn't matter so much if it was only 25 basis points. Yeah, I think that's right. And the forward guidance that would come with that would emphasize that this is a very gradual normalization I wouldn't say that if I was a central banker, but I would signal that this will turn out to be the loosest tightening of monetary policy in the modern history of central banking. So it will be 25 basis points with forward guidance saying that this is going to be a very gradual normalization process. Mohammed, uh, Fran mentioned your excellent columns uh, this week. You wrote one about the debt ceiling. Let me ask you a bit about that. Um, I've been reading through this uh, interview that Gary Cohn did with the Financial Times, uh, and he talks about how he and the Treasury Secretary are speaking with one unified voice. They have to raise the, the debt ceiling. We cannot default, uh, he tells the, the FT. It strikes me, I spent uh, many years in Washington reporting on Washington, and whenever I'd talk with business people in New York, they would say, why, why doesn't D.C. get what's important here in New York? Why are they so oblivious to what's happening uh, with the markets? Uh, a lot of people expected that to change when Donald Trump became president, when they looked at who, they, who he brought in with him to, to serve in, the, in those economic roles. How much dissonance is there? Is, is the White House not getting the message on the debt ceiling, do you think? No, I, th- I think they are. But remember that the debt ceiling tends to trigger all sorts of reactions in Washington. First, on the size of government. And there are fundamental differences, ideological, about whether you want a big government or small government. Then there are fundamental differences about how worried should you be about public debt. So the minute you get to a debt ceiling discussion, you trigger these underlying differences. Now, add to that that this one has been linked to the funding of President Trump's controversial wall on the Mexican border, and add to that that it comes in the midst of divisions within the Republican Party, and you get a lot of rhetoric, a blame game, a game of chicken. But ultimately, David, I believe that this is going to be resolved. I do not think that either party wants to be seen as responsible for an embarrassing downgrade of the U.S. credit rating, responsible for an unprecedented tax um, debt default, Mm -hmm. and they don't want to also shut down the government. So I I believe that when push comes to shove, there will be an agreement to raise the debt ceiling. 
You know, you point out in your piece that we've seen the debt ceiling raised 74 times in the last 55 years. How used to this uh, is the market? There's always the anxiety about whether or not this is going to happen. Often goes down to the wire. Uh, there's a threat that it might not happen, that it might not be done uh, cleanly. There's the, the difficulty imposed by the fact that the X date, as it's called, is, is a moving target. Uh, how used to this uh, is the market at this point? Pretty used, but not complete. Why do I mean by that? We haven't seen any major reaction of risk assets, and that's despite prices being elevated. But we have seen within the bond market some pricing, some strange pricing. So if you look at the October Treasury bill, early October, relative to the November, the early October Treasury bill is trading a slightly higher yield than in November. That's unusual. And it, it is around the timing of the debt ceiling. So, so there is some, some concern, but it is pretty small right now. And I think rightly so. Mohammed, great to speak with you as always. Too short today. I hope we can talk again soon here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Mohammed El Arian, Bloomberg View columnist and chief economic advisor at Allianz. We- Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.